This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Today's scripture is Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26, which can be found on page 810 of the Pew Bibles around you. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Good morning. Let's pray and we'll uh, dive in. Lord, we come to you this morning in the name of Jesus because of his finished work, because of the redemption that we have in him and in him alone. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that every part of your word is meant for our edification, for our building up, for our life before you. God, this morning I ask as we begin uh, what might feel to us as a series of weighty words, of heavy words, of hard words, of confronting words, of words that are going to stir up things in our hearts, in our minds, in relationships. And um, we might on the surface see as difficult. God, I ask that by your spirit, you would invite us into the way that leads to life. God, your word declares that your commandments are not burdensome. Every word that you spoke to us that invites us to obey you is a word that invites us to be fully alive, whole before you. God, so we ask that you would open our eyes. Would you give the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit even as we open your word together this morning? Would you inspire our hearts and attract our hearts to the way that is good and right and leads to life? And would you give us strength, we ask, by the power of the Holy Spirit this morning as we look at these things, as we open your word, as we hear and sit under your truth? Jesus, would you teach us? Great teacher, would you come and teach us would you instruct us? Would you, uh, would you not let us harbor things that you call poisonous? Would you not let us be content to be complacent around 
things that you say will kill us. God, will you give us a tenacity and a spiritual violence for obedience, for wholehearted devotion to you. God, would you make us that kind of people? We ask in your name and for your glory. Amen. Okay, so we're going to dive right in. Look with me at letter A. This is just a couple sentences of review to situate us. Uh, we've got our work cut out for us this morning to frame up what the, this new section is in the Sermon on the Mount. And then we're going to look at this first uh, statement that Jesus has on anger. So the Sermon on the Mount, if you've been with us uh, over the last several weeks, or if you're new here with us, this is just a sentence for us uh, to review. This is Jesus' most comprehensive or full teaching on what it looks like for a believer to partner with the grace of God, to actively pursue what it means to conform our lives around what God calls beautiful and right and true and whole. Uh, we, this, is, this is what Jesus says is, is what it means to build sturdy and steady foundations in this world that cannot be shaken no matter what. This teaching portrays a life that is lived in active partnership with God's grace, centered around the things that God defines as valuable. So the sermon, as we've seen, begins with this statement of eight Beatitudes, these eight statements of Jesus's value system or the value system of the kingdom of heaven. It's a succinct portrait of what matters in the heart of God for the people who he is creating into his new covenant community. This is a picture of a life ordered around the values of the kingdom of heaven. The presence and the growth of these values in our lives are the substance of our discipleship. That's what Jesus means when he says, you are salt and light in the world. The argument there is what he's saying is the person that embodies these values is salt and light. And just like salt that doesn't taste like salt isn't salt or light that's hidden under a bushel isn't light, a believer or a disciple whose life is not growing around these values and these beatitudes, they are not my disciple. Jesus lays out that this is the substance of what discipleship looks like in those who follow him. And this is also the measure of true and lasting greatness in God's kingdom. So with Matthew 5.21, what we heard read this morning, we begin a new section in the sermon. After laying out these eight virtues and their importance, Jesus now begins to highlight six resistances or sins that are to be actively resisted in our pursuit of cultivating and pursuing wholehearted obedience to Jesus. So Jesus is going to say these eight virtues, as you seek to see them grow and cultivated in your soul, here are six things that in the hearts of, of humans stand in the way of these virtues growing and coming to fruition. You could think of it like 
uh, flowers in a garden or fruits in a garden, right? If the eight beatitudes are like these fruits that are being cultivated in the garden of our life in discipleship, these six things are like weeds in the garden that are prone to grow up and choke out the life that God desires to see produced in us by his grace. So he's going to turn in this section and uh, step towards these six areas. Each of these are six examples that become like strongholds in the human heart and stand in the way of the fruits of righteousness growing to full maturity in our lives. Each of these is introduced by Jesus, highlighting what his hearers would have often heard said, right? Like you hear it again and again and again. It was said to the ancients, or you have heard it said this way, uh, either through the Old Testament or the teaching of the rabbis. But then he demonstrates the true spirit of the law by introducing what he says or he teaches. And then he invites his disciples to practice walking in the opposite spirit from these interdispositions. So what I want you to get there is this. Jesus outlines these inner realities that stand in the way of the eight beatitudes being cultivated and grown up in our hearts. What Jesus does not do, I think this is really important and I want you to catch this. Jesus does not try to give a quote unquote new law or a deeper law. Have you ever thought about that when you've read through these? Jesus does not come on the scene and say, hey, you've heard that it was said, if you murder somebody, don't, don't murder, right? You shall not murder. But I tell you, uh, anybody that's angry has already committed that sin and is liable of the same judgment. What he does not do is come on the scene and say, so don't be angry. What he does is he says, when you see this going on in your soul, here are the ways to partner with my grace to act in a manner opposite of that. He does not come along the scene and say, don't be angry. Hey, everybody, don't be angry because it's the same as murder. He doesn't come and do that. What he is inviting us to is to see these areas of poison that come into our souls. And they're tempted to uh, choke out life as we are partnered with him and united with him in growing in maturity. He says, when you see these things, here is how to respond in accordance with my grace to act in a way that breaks the cycle of these things in your soul and in relationships around you. That's really important for us to see. That's, that's essentially what I'm saying in letter F. Letter G, each of these realities could be said to be like a poison, either in our hearts or in relationships around us. The applications that Jesus gives are meant to resist and remove that poison by his grace and its effects primarily in our hearts. Here's what I want you to, if you could walk away with a banner over these things, it would be this. Jesus wants you to be free. That is what Jesus is getting at here. If you read these any other way, you're going to miss it. 
Jesus is coming to you and to me and he's saying, there are poisons at work in your soul that if you tend them and cultivate them and they go unchecked, they will kill you. I want you to be free. Therefore, he gives us these ways forward. This is about freedom. This is about your heart being free before God. That's what I want to put as the banner over these things. Look at Roman numeral two. Before we dive into looking at the text and anger, I think we have to frame up what went before us and how Jesus closes this to understand what's happening here. So to best understand the meaning of these six statements, we have to understand what's just come before and the statement that Jesus uses to close the section. So in the previous section, uh, in verses 17 to 20, Jesus declared that he didn't come away to do away with the Old Testament, the law or the prophets, any of the purposes of God that had gone before. Rather, he came to bring them to their full intent. He came to take all of the purposes of God and bring them to their full completion in his ministry. That's what he's saying. He didn't come to do away with them. He didn't come to push them to the side. He didn't come to like give a new one in place of it. He says what all of that pointed to, I have come to consummate and bring to fullness in my life and ministry and among any who join themselves to me by faith. So he's saying, I came to bring them to their full intent. What this means is that Jesus declares in his life and his ministry, he's bringing all of God's dealings with humanity to their full purposes. He becomes now the hinge on which the promises, the plans, and the revelation of God swings. He is the focal point. That's, that's what he's getting at. So he didn't come away to absolve or do away with any of those things, but bring them to their fullest intent. So in the ministry of Jesus, God is bringing to fulfillment what the Old Testament scriptures always pointed to and were always seeking to accomplish. Look at the top of page two. So what was God always wanting to accomplish? From the beginning, God's desire was to create a world in which he could share the abundance of his self-satisfied being with another. That's the purpose of God from the jump. He wanted to create a creature called humans, made in his image that he could share himself with. That's the number one goal of God in creating because what he wanted to do is bring glory to himself by creating a being that he could so unbelievably ultimately satisfy that they would see there is no other being in all of creation that could bring fulfillment and joy and satisfaction like you do. And that brings him glory. So this is the point 
of God's workings as sin came into the world and fractured the ability for that relationship to happen, he began to set out a course to bring redemption so that that could be accomplished. So the goal of his dealings is to bring people back into covenant relationship with him and thereby experience the blessed or whole or satisfied life. This is, if you're familiar with the Westminster Catechism, the answer to the very first question is that man's chief end, meaning the reason we were created, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So you want to know what Jesus is bringing to fulfillment in his ministry and even in this teaching? Your ability to give glory to God and enjoy him forever. That's why this really matters. When we get to him standing and giving commandments, he's not trying to kill your joy. He's trying to maximize it. He is trying to take your ability to experience his immense life as all satisfying, all glorious, all pleasurable, and remove everything that stands in the way of that. That's what he's trying to get at. Uh, It's very important that we grab a hold of that. So the result of Jesus's work, he says, would be a greater righteousness than was expressed and sought after by scribes and Pharisees, meaning it's not just an external righteousness. It was one that dwelt in the soul, that was internal. It comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone, apart from external obedience to the law, and unites a believer to Jesus. This now empowers us to walk in greater measures of communion with him and greater measures of conformity to his will. I'll let you read those scriptures on your own. So the result of this work, letter G, is that Jesus' disciples are invited into participating in this life in part now. And why I say in part is not that the reality of experiencing that life is diminished, but we will not experience it in its fullness until the age to come. We won't experience it. The reality of our life is now we are united to Christ. We stand in his presence. We are righteous. We've been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus himself. All of those things are true, full stop. We will not yet experience the fullness of that until we see him face to face. That's that's what I'm trying to get out there. But the redeemed are brought back into union with him and given the grace to walk in his ways even though this will remain weak and incomplete through this life. So if that's what went before, Jesus is saying, I didn't come to take anything away. I came to bring it to its ultimate end. I came to make a way for what I've always been about to happen, which is people dwelling in relationship with me, glorifying me and enjoying me. That's what he came to do. But that's what came before. But Jesus closes this section with a really profound statement that helps us understand what's going on here. The section culminates with Jesus' exhortation for his disciples to be perfect, as his Father in heaven is perfect. Look at Matthew 5.48 there. You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, I don't know if you're like me, you read that and you kind of go, Wow. It's a tall order, right? Now, I think one of the things that's important for us to understand is this is not Jesus' call to attain to some state of sinless perfection in our lives. 
That's an unfortunate result, I think, of the English use of the word perfect. The, the Greek word that's used here carries this sense of like wholeness or completeness. Uh, I believe what Jesus is doing here is inviting his followers to walk with him in the way that will lead to wholeness. What I think Jesus is saying here is be wholehearted in your pursuit of me. Be wholehearted. And what wholeheartedness is, let me just give you two really easy ways to understand that. I'll give you a negative way and a positive way. The negative way to understand wholeheartedness is that we are not harboring or being complicit with any known area of sin in our life. To be wholehearted is just to say every area of sin in your life that you are aware of, you are actively seeking to resist it. It doesn't mean you don't stumble. It doesn't mean that it's not weak. It doesn't mean that you don't have to repent for it again and again and again. It just means that when you stumble in it, or if you stumble in it, you don't just kind of begin to sweep it under the rug and go, well, it's not that big of a deal. You don't harbor or become complicit with known areas of sin in your life. That's one way you could talk about wholeheartedness. The positive way you could talk about it is that you are actively seeking to partner with God's grace every area, in every area where he has shine, shown his light. If he has put his finger on something or revealed something, you are seeking to actively partner with his grace to walk in obedience with that. That's what Jesus is getting at here. He is inviting us to the whole, complete, full life. And he's saying, walk in this way. I think this has far-reaching implications for how we understand these six statements. And I just want to give you three really quickly, and then we'll, we'll look at anger. But this is, this is for us for the next several weeks as we drill into these. I think some implications need to be put on the table for us as we seek to understand what Jesus is doing here. The first implication is this. Sin is not neutral. Sin is not neutral. The reality of sin in the hearts of people is like poison. We have to come face to face with that. Sin is not neutral. It's not just something that we like cope with or push to the side or become complicit with or complacent with any of those things. Sin is a poison that is killing us. That is what the Bible makes very clear. It's not, it's not to be taken lightly. And the presence of sin in our lives requires a zealous, radical, and even spiritually violent posture to resist its presence. Sin is not neutral. That's number one. Number two, the second implication I think we can have is that the commandments of God are meant to maximize our joy. I've said this several times, but to understand Jesus' teaching as being ordered around the blessed or the whole life shows us that his commandments are not intended to keep us from joy. Right? Jesus does not put boundaries around your life because he doesn't want you to have fun or he, because he's a killjoy. Jesus understands 
that things that we run after are like tasty things that are laced with poison. And he goes, that will kill you. It might taste really good today, but it will kill you. And he puts boundaries around your life in order that you would be more satisfied, more fulfilled, more whole, more full of joy. The commandments of God are designed to maximize your joy. If you do not connect to this, this will be absurd to you. I promise. If you do not begin to lay hold of by faith that God's ways are intended to maximize your joy, you will kind of have this like crotchety disposition towards obedience. Obedience is an invitation to the fullest expression of what it means to be alive. And if we do not connect to that, again, we have to lay hold of that by faith. Sometimes we have to choose to go, God, by faith, I am going to believe that what you say leads to life. Even though I don't connect that right now, even though I might not see how submitting to your ways here leads to my ultimate joy, I am going to believe, I'm going to bank on your word that what you say is true and your ways lead to life. The scriptures again tell us the commandments of God are not burdensome. Do you see them that way? It's a real question. Do you see the commandments of God as a burden or as the invitation into what it means to be fully alive? The third implication, pursuing wholehearted obedience in these areas reinforces and cultivates the eight Beatitudes. What I want us to lay hold of and connect to in this is when we see the presence of these sins in our lives, and we begin to desire to live in accordance with God's ways, you will be quickly, quickly, quickly brought back to blessed are the poor in spirit. Right? When you go, hey, anybody that's angry with his brother is worthy of this judgment. Anybody that insults or anybody that speaks these kind of things is worthy of this. And you go, yes, I want to embrace God's ways. I want that poison to be gone from my heart. You will see it again and again and again. And it will bring you to the place yet again of, God, I can't change my own soul. I can't change my own heart. I need your power. I need your grace. These are not just designed to be this standard that Jesus goes like, hey, when you attain to these, come and talk to me. He says, pursue these ways. Find out how unable you are to do them. Run back to me and let my grace change you. That's what he is inviting us to. So don't see these as this like standard that until you accomplish them, you can't walk with him. Remember, blessed are the poor in spirit. And he's actually setting up the way of your discipleship to drive that thing home in your soul. Because that is the way of fullness and wholeness and blessedness. 
He is going to lead you in a way that brings you to mourning. He is going to do these things. All of these invitations are meant to reinforce and cultivate those realities. So I think all of those things are important. All right, look at the top of page three. So he starts with anger. The first of the six temptations that Jesus identifies as poison to our hearts is the spirit of escalating anger. He demonstrates that the Old Testament law had commanded against murder, but that the desire and the intention of God's heart was always that the hearts of his people not succumb to the cycles of increasing anger and bitterness toward one another. So there are many stages to anger. And I want to make every single one of us uneasy this morning. Every one of us. Because this isn't just about you flying off the handle and losing your cool. That's not what Jesus is getting at here. Jesus doesn't leave any of us untouched with this. There are many stages to anger. We have to have an active resistance to the presence of this in our lives in every form. And here, I'll just give you a couple. Angry emotions, right? So angry emotions that are reactive and rooted in seeking vengeance, retaliation, all of those kind of things, Jesus goes, that thing. Angry emotions. There are forms of manipulation that are soft ways for us to communicate our anger with one another. Think about silent treatment. Think about walling off in coolness towards someone relationally. That's anger expressing itself in manipulation. That's anger, contempt. Here's what's really funny. I put contempt on here twice unknowingly. This one's a big deal. <laughs> Go, it's there and it's the very last one. It's like the Department of Redundancy Department. <laughs> but, but, hey, contempt is a massive deal. And what I mean by contempt is this. Let me, let me tell you the statement of contempt that you and I probably are unwilling to look at or we don't want to. Eye rolling. The internal eye roll at someone we are close with that we like seek to undermine their respectability or their um, dignity. And we kind of do this like, oh, of course. You always do that. They're always like that. And we roll our eyes and we make light of it. We laugh about it. We do all, it's, here's, here's the picture I have in my mind of that. Every dad in a sitcom since the last 35 years, the relation of the wife and the children to them, that is contempt. I believe Jesus calls that anger. And he would say that is the spirit of murder at work in our souls. And gone unchecked, it will destroy you. And it will destroy relationships. 
hey, the easiest way to look at that is to look at divorce. When that plays out in marriages, divorce is rampant. Contempt is the great marriage killer. It really is. Where do we have that in our souls? Okay, here's another one that's really closely related. Certain types of sarcasm. Sarcasm, brothers and sisters, sarcasm can be, I don't want to know, well, I do want to just say this, I'm going to, I'm going to come back. Sarcasm is vile. It's vile. It is poison to relationships. It is a soft laughing veneer that contains real barbs. And we let it go like nobody's business. We let it go. It will kill you. It will kill relationships around you. And just because we go, man, everybody does it, right? Everybody does it. It's okay. I want to invite us to go. I don't think sarcasm, the benefits of it are worth the cost. This is what we have to look at. If we believe Jesus is for our good, for our joy, for our life, for our wholeness, if Jesus puts his finger on something, we kind of need to go, hey, I'm going to go as far as I can toward that. Not go like, well, everybody thinks this thing's okay. So we'll just hold on to it. We won't address that one. We won't talk about that one. We have to be resistant to these in every place of our life, every form that it takes. Look at Hebrews 12. This is the writer of Hebrews talking about what happens when this begins to take root in our lives. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. This is an unbelievable reality about anger and bitterness and contempt that happens in our souls. It takes root. It causes trouble. It springs up. And then what does it do? It defiles you? Well, certainly. But the writer of Hebrews tells us it defiles many. Many are defiled by the presence of this. Nursing bitterness towards others must be seen as dangerous and destructive. To succumb to patterns of unrighteous anger in our thoughts or in our actions will have devastating effects over time. 1 John 3, everyone that hates his brother is a murderer. I'm not going to read the whole of it, but I do want us to see this. From the earliest points in the Old Testament, there's a clear relationship between anger and murder. It's the first post-fall story. You want to know how big of a deal this is? The first thing that happens post-fall is God curses the ground. He curses the man and the woman. He curses the snake. He subjects creation to the futility of sinfulness. Then, immediately after moving them out of the garden, the next story is about anger and its effects in the world. This is a big deal. What we see is 
in the story of Cain and Abel, anger opens a door for greater darkness and greater spiritual activity, demonic activity. Now, I don't know what you guys think about this. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter four as well. He says, be angry, don't sin, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil an opportunity. Hey, you wanna know ways to open the door of your life to demonic influence and the activity of the devil? Harbor anger in your soul. It's really clear from the scripture. This is massive. I'll let you read that on your own. Letter E, unchecked. Anger has an ability to fester and grow in our hearts. This brings destruction to our own souls and to our relationships. Jesus is concerned to show us that the point of the commandment was never to solely outlaw the act of physical murder. Rather, he demonstrates that the internal realities of harboring and nursing contempt or disdain in our hearts toward others are evidence of dangerous realities in our soul. Anger comes when we are opposed, right? Like when our own selfish desires get uh, uh, missed or they get resisted or they don't happen. Look at James 4 here. James gives this profound like insight to the human soul. Hey, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this? Your passions are warring inside of you. You want something and you don't get it. So you murder. Now, I don't think in James's, the church that James is writing to, that these people were literally killing each other. I think James is picking up this teaching right here and he's going, hey, do you want to know why you're striving and quarreling and there's all these problems happening among you? Let me, let me expose the heart for you for a second. You wanted something. You didn't get it. And so you hate people. Fascinating reality. Anybody with teenage children knows this. Here's a, and we don't ever really grow out of it. I'm, I'm just saying that because it's like front and center. Fascinating reality. James does not go, I wanted something from you. You didn't give it to me. Therefore, I hate you. He says, you just wanted something. I wanted something over here. I didn't get it, so it comes out against you. We always talk about in our family, emotions coming out sideways. Anger is the number one coming out sideways emotion. You wanted something, you didn't get it, so you hate each other. Fascinating reality. Jesus here describes unrighteous expressions of anger. I want to say this, but I actually don't want to spend a lot of time here. The commandment in the scripture, there is a commandment to be angry and not sin. We must believe there are some types of righteous expressions and experiences of anger. I think that's true. However, I think we're really fast to run to those to justify ourselves. Here's, here's, the, here's the matrix through which you need to put your anger. Does it look like what God describes? Slow to anger, patient, abounding in mercy. Does it look like that? 
Does it look like the type of anger and indignation that is slow? Or did this happen fast, right? The stimulant came, I raged within me, it came out. I'm just being righteously, I just have a justice chip in me. Let's be skeptical of our own justifications of righteous anger. I do believe they exist. There's ways to be angry and not sin, and I think a lot of it has to do with not talking about it (laughs) or talking about it to God. But let's be quick to be skeptical of our own expressions of anger, taking them before the Lord and walking in this. Okay, I want to fly through this. Look at the top of page four. What Jesus does is he outlines four truths, what it means to oppose or resist or stand against anger that I think are really powerful for us. And each of these is just a statement as he walks through this. Truth number one, and we've, we've been flying around this, so I don't have to spend time here, but truth one is that anyone who operates in anger is in danger of judgment both in the courts of men and the courts of God. He's saying, take this seriously. That's, that's the point. Hey, the spirit of murder is anger. And what we said, you had heard said, if you murder, you'll be liable of this kind of judgment. I want to tell you, if you are angry and that goes nursed and unresisted, you will be liable of the same thing. That's truth number one. Truth number two, anyone who speaks or acts in anger is in danger because of the escalating nature of its consequences. We see that in verse 22. Whoever insults his brother, whoever says you fool, we see that speaking and acting in anger allows for strongholds of anger to be built in us. It also wounds others, breaks relationships, and leads to hardening of the heart. James 3 invites us to see that the tongue has this remarkable power to set fires and to stoke fires in your own soul. It has this remarkable ability to literally start fires everywhere. Jesus says, if you find yourself in the spot where you're speaking in anger, watch out for that. Anger is escalating to the place where it is becoming a reality in your soul. And when you, when, it, when you vocalize it, when it comes out, when you act on it in that way, it starts fires, both in your soul and in the souls of others, and brings destruction. I go off on sarcasm again there. Look at number four. Our emotions will follow our words and our thoughts. I just wanted to say this uh, related to your tongue. And again, our cultural moment where we find ourselves that the greatest virtue seems to be telling everyone how angry you are. Let me tell you something. Venting your anger to get it off your chest doesn't work. The scriptures actually invite us to see that when you speak it, it doesn't get it off your chest. It actually pushes it deeper. It actually drives it down farther into you. 
So when we're trying to like garner support and sympathy for all the ways, look, can't you believe that this person did this and this and this and this and this? And we want to trumpet blast that because we got to find a place to be authentic and we got to be who we are, right? Like I got to tell it how it is. We're actually driving that thing further into our soul. We're not doing anything productive with it. Now you can take it to the Lord and go, God, this is what's real. Will you help me here? Will you, will, you give, will you give grace here? God, this hurts. This really hurt me. This really affected me. I really want vengeance here. I mean, you could tell God that. He might go, hey, I've got that. Will you let me take care of the vengeance on that one? Will you let me figure that out? Speaking it does not dissipate it. Let me just reiterate that. It does not get it off your chest. It presses it further into your soul. Truth number three. When we see anger in our lives, we must act in the opposite spirit with urgency. This is what Jesus is getting at here. So that word should actually be therefore. It's therefore. In the, in the original language, the word is therefore. Most translations translate it therefore. I've got a little problem with the ESV right there. It's okay though. Therefore, meaning if you speak an insult to a brother, if you call him a fool, if you've harbored anger in your soul with him, this is really important. This isn't just if you know somebody's bothered by you or like annoyed at you or anything like that. This is if you have acted in anger towards someone, if you've harbored it in your soul, if you've spoken in it and you're at a place worshiping, this is how vigorous and violent you should be to make it right. If you're in in the act of worship and you go, oh my goodness, I have conviction because I've harbored bitterness. I've harbored contempt. I've spoken in a way that's fractured relationships and broken them. Jesus goes, hey, don't let that sit one second. In that moment, leave what you're doing. Leave your, leave your gift right there on the altar. Run to your brother and repent. Repent. Hey, brother, I spoke to you in anger. Will you forgive me? I've harbored this contempt towards you. Here's the thing about contempt, right? You can harbor contempt in your soul. The person you have contempt towards knows you have contempt towards them. We're not that good of hiding that stuff. <laughs> Go to them, repent, ask for forgiveness quickly. Jesus goes, hey, be violent about this. Don't let it sit. Don't let it uh, be still there. He commands us to go. Now, he commands us to reconcile with our brother. And let me give you the two ways that this happens. Reconciliation happens first with personal repentance. And both of these are going to be things you do. You can't actually change what that other person does. Right? They may not desire to forgive you. They may not put you back in right standing with them. All those kind of things. You go and repent if they have something against you. And I don't just mean, again, anything against you. I mean something in relation to anger is what Jesus is getting at here. Go to them, 
repent. Repentance is really, really, it's really costly. It's not difficult. It is, brother, sister, I did this. It was sin. Will you forgive me? Not like, gee, shucks, you know, like, aren't we all like weak? Like, if I offended you, I'm really sorry. And like, da, 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 none of that. Call it sin. Tell them you're sorry. I repent. I sinned. Forgive me. That's the one, that's one way we enact reconciliation. The second is this. Again, most of the time our anger is from places where we felt slighted, opposed, hurt, like all of that. Your second thing, and we won't get to this until chapter six, that's why I don't have to spend a ton of time here, but Jesus is gonna come back to this one. You repent and you forgive. You forgive. Now, Jesus is gonna hit this in chapter six as a positive means to how do we cultivate these things more and more and more. But what we do not see in the scripture is forgive if they repent or forgive if you think they're sorry enough. Jesus will go, hey, that thing, if you let it sit and simmer and hold on in there is going to be like poison to you. Forgiveness is the way out. And he invites us to forgive. So reconciliation, go and make this happen. Repent, ask for forgiveness. And then the place where you were slighted, you forgive. That's how we do this. And we need to do this with urgency. The last thing, the last truth is that without repentance, without seeking to repent, both internally and in relationships around us, we will pay the full debt of our anger. If you've ever wondered, like, how does this make sense? What Jesus is getting at when he says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going to court, lest they hand you over to the judge, the judge to the guard, and they put you in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. What Jesus is saying is anger brings you and relationships into bondage. And if you do not deal with it, you will deal with it until you've paid for it fully. He's like, it's not just going to go away. It's not going to go away on its own. If you let that thing seep around inside, it is going to grow until you've paid every last penny, every single last drop of it. It doesn't just go away. You don't just sweep it under the rug. It has to be dealt with and it has to be dealt with in the means and the manner in which Jesus has outlined for us to deal with it. That is what we do there. So we have these four truths. Let me exhort us to something as we get ready to come to the table. Here's my two exhortations. Would you this morning begin to ask the Lord and then by faith begin to reach towards this. Ask the Lord to help you see the severity of sin and the reality that these commandments are intended to maximize your joy. 
your fullness of life, your wholeness, all those things. The first exhortation is ask the Lord to do those things. God, would you help me to see that this is like a poison that will kill me? And you are inviting me into a place where you will take that poison. You'll extract it out of my soul. That's what he's doing in these commandments. Ask him to reveal that to you. That's the exhortation number one. Exhortation number two is, would you begin to ask the Lord and begin to look at the places where this kind of stuff is alive in your soul and in your relationships and set yourself, Jesus, I will act with unprecedented urgency towards this. It's what he calls us to. Hey, even if you are in the act of worship itself and you go, oh man, I snapped at my, my son this morning. Go get him out of Redeemer Kids right now. Look him in the eye and go, daddy was angry. Will you forgive me? I repent. Whatever that is, act with unprecedented urgency towards this because it is poison. And Jesus wants you to be alive. He wants us to be fully, fully, fully alive. Ask the Lord for those things. Set your heart to pursue this with urgency and full commitment. Every area he puts his finger on, we go, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Amen. Amen. Would you stand? the team comes up. Servers, you're, you're welcome to come up as well. Let's just present ourselves to the Lord. Father, here we are. We, uh, we love you. We love your word. We love your ways. We thank you that you have spoken to us and that you desire our good. You desire life for us. You desire us to experience the joy of salvation. You've freely given it to us. And so we receive it this morning and we, we ask that you would help us to align the whole of our lives in accordance with what you call good so that we would more and more experience the joy of our salvation. God, I ask all across this room and the places where we have had your spirit put um, your finger, your proverbial finger on areas in our lives. God, would you give us grace this morning? Would you give us urgency this morning? Would you give us the ability to confess, to repent, to receive afresh the true mercy of Christ? like in every one of those places. God, would you increase the spirit of conviction in our midst? God, we want to be whole. We don't want, we don't want an ounce of poison in our souls. We don't want an ounce. God, would you 
Would you extract it? Would you extract it? Would you, for your glory and for our joy, come and do work among us? So we respond this morning in song and we've got prayer ministers throughout the, the sanctuary that would love to pray with you, pray for you if you're feeling stirred this morning, if there's like a, a longing in your soul to uh, step toward the Lord in this moment. Uh, we would love to lay hands on you, ask the Lord to continue to speak, to move, to give you grace, to um, make his ways beautiful and glorious to you. We also get to respond by coming to the table. It's a really beautiful reality in preaching a sermon on anger to get to come to the table together. Because one of the realities about anger is this place where we get into a self-vindictive, self retaliation uh, mechanism where we go, I have to take matters into my own hands. And at the cross, at the foot of the cross, we get to say, you are the righteous judge. The one who did not spare his only son. So how do we get to come and like offer up forgiveness, right? offer up forgiveness to other people, especially brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Like what, what would it look like for you this morning in a place where you're harboring anger towards someone who is a brother or sister to come to the table this morning and go, yes, the Lord has taken the chastisement for my peace, but he's also taken the chastisement for theirs. Hey, you want him to cover your sins, but sometimes we don't want him to cover that one, right? Of, of that person over there. We want, we want justice. We want vindication. We want to see that thing uh, dealt with. Come to the table this morning and let the savior of the world hung to a cross, beaten and bloodied, go, I took that one. What does that do for forgiveness in your soul this morning? for places of anger and hostility and vengeance and retaliation and contempt. Because on the night he was betrayed, this is what's beautiful. Jesus took a loaf of bread. He broke it just like his body was to be broken. He said, this is my body broken for you. Take it and eat it in remembrance of what I've done. And in the same manner, he took a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins, that you might be in new covenant with me. Take it and drink it and do it in remembrance of me. And so if you look to Jesus and Jesus alone this morning, come and take this meal. This meal is open to any who call upon the name of Jesus, who put their faith in him. Come and receive freely. The way we do this at Redeemer is you tear a piece of the bread off, dip it in the cup, we have wine in the stoneware. We have juice in the glassware. You, you can see the servers where they're at. And we've got a gluten-free station to my right, to your left. If you're in the room this morning and you don't put your faith in Jesus, 
We wanna ask that you not come take this meal. This is a meal of remembrance. It points to a reality of a man who gave his life for the sins of the world through death. And we put our faith in him in order to be saved. And if that's not your, if you don't believe that, this meal would be hollow for you. It wouldn't be, uh, it's, it doesn't save you. It doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't forgive you. We would invite that you stay in your seat and turn to Jesus this morning. Turn and look at him. But for those of you who are coming, we're gonna respond through song, through prayer, and at the table. You can come when you're ready.